Lansing ladies and Jim Pool gentlemen, wind up your war scythes, repolish your Ricasso, and is that a fully loaded 54mm semi-automatic hunting rifle in your pocket, or are you just happy to see me? <laughs> because, ladies and gentlemen, it is time to let slip the dogs of Talk Tell to me. Welcome back. I am Omen Thomas Sade. And I am Nick McGill. Together, we are the nunchuck of Factless Moans. And this, my sweet artillery, is Talk Tall to Me. A warlike walkabout amongst the shattered countryside of Prague Rock in which Zappa Zap Nick and Oxborough Dirk Omen will sharpen the gleaming blades of our minds against the hard surfaces of every single track that rapier-sharp rock band Jethro Tull have ever forged in the blazing fires of their hearts. We will plunge the Joe Parrish poignard deep into the hearts of our enemies, bash the horrid hordes on the head with our John O'Hara hilt, and gut the goblins of evil with our David Goodyear Golok. And if we can show our valor in musical battle, we may attract the eye of the guillotine general, the claymore of the claghorn, the Scottish saber, the billhook of Blackpool, the gatling gun of the galliard, Ian Automatic Kalashnikov Anderson. Wow. Yeah. I had fun, I had fun with that one. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, that was, I could tell. I could tell. It was a masterpiece. You're so good. It was a piece. It was a piece of master. Nick, we are Omen. on the 11th track of the most recent Jethro Tull album, A Rock of Fliot. And what, <laughs> pray tell, is the name of that track? That track is named Guardian's Watch. Guardian's Watch. What time it is, mm -hmm. look at your Guardian's Watch. <laughs> Sounds like a really bad television show from the 60s. Guardians, watch. Yeah. Watch as they assemble. Yeah. Watch, watch them. Watch them do this. <laughs> There's a spin-off, Guardians Wash. Mm, they say, remember, okay. kids, it's time to wash your hands. 30 seconds can save you days worth of sickness. <laughs> Just listen to what Scrubby says. Hi, boys and girls. Shut up, Scrubby. <laughs> anyway. Nick, shall we take a listen to Guardians Watch? Uh, yeah, no need for preamble. Let's jump right into this baby. Track number 11, Guardian's Watch. The Nzappa Zap, for those of you curious. Oh, please tell me, I laughed at that word. It's a traditional weapon from some of the peoples of the Congo area in Africa, and it is a, it is a ceremonial, largely ceremonial axe or hatchet, which has a very intricate, um, interesting-looking blade. Try and guess how it's spelled, and then look it up and then succumb to madness. <laughs> <laughs> Gil. Merciful Christmas. That was uh, the Guardian's Watch, Omen. So fascinating this song is to me. Utterly fascinating, this song. 
I will say that this is my favorite song off of the Zealot Gene. <laughs> I was going to say it belongs on a Christmas album, but yeah, that works too. <laughs> yes, I, that intro is so Christmassy. I had the same thought when I first heard it. Yeah. But to me, this song is so... It's so emblematic, or it it encapsulates so well that theme that we talked about so much with the Zelgene of the the dark in the light and the light in the dark. Oh, sure. The yeah. kind of yin and yang of the biblical story. Even more so, I think, than Cornucopia did sonically. Yes. This one, they blend better together. Cornucopia oh, is yeah. like light and then dark. It's like looking at an Oreo. You you see those different layers, whereas this is like this is a Ben and Jerry's ice cream where you're eating and then you get a chunk of peanut butter with your vanilla and then you get, oh, look, there's a there's a chocolate swirl in that one, you know? Nick hasn't had his dinner and is hungry. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it to me is, it's the theme of good and evil or it's the theme of conflict in a very, in almost a Tolkien-esque way, which is, you know, Tolkien, a lot of his imagery was and characters and societies that he created were derivative of Norse culture. So it, it makes sense. Right. I think it's it's less binary, too. I think we don't, particularly in reference to that Norse story, you know, like, who are the good guys here, really? Right, 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 right. It's less a story of good and evil and more a story of the dominant forces against the subdominant forces. And they're just going to beat the hell out of each other. And beat, they do. That they do. Beat it! Beat it! Open up your mouth and feed it. I think that may have been the, the Weird Al version I, of that I believe song. that was, yeah. <laughs> Just eat it, eat it. Open up your mouth and feed it. What I find so fascinating about this song is that the thing that everybody knows about Norse mythology, anybody who knows anything about Norse mythology knows that the conclusion of the story is Ragnarok. Right. Everybody dies. Everybody kills each other. And so when you're getting to this last song that you know is about Ragnarok and you hear, it's like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. What happened It's here? like a Renaissance dance almost. It is. It very much feels like, it, like that. It feels like going back to the kind of nouveau Baroque, yeah. pseudo-Renaissance style that we heard back in Songs from the Wood or, yeah. or that era of Tull, which is delightful. I always love hearing that. Yeah. Down to the steel guitar being played in a lute-like way, or mm -hmm. perhaps it's a, maybe it's an organ on a harpsichord setting. Yeah. Something kind of tinkly there in the background. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's peculiar. It's another instance of just like Cornucopia, and this one is... This one is tied at the top for me with Cornucopia, sonically. I, I, they're both phenomenal songs. But just like that one, when I first heard it, I was like, oh, is, is this one going to be an instrumental? Yeah. And then even though that light bit is a lot shorter than Cornucopia was, I still felt that. It only lasts about 30 seconds, but it's a very long, lulling, comfortable 30 seconds. And then, yeah, yeah, drops yeah. you into it. The garden stands above the plain. That switch is so beautiful. And for me, I often think of Tall in terms of cinema. Mm. And Ian has said how, or he said in, in an interview at some point that he kind of approaches songwriting 
from a painting point of view, from a painterly point of view. Right. And so I, I always am trying to think, well, what's the frame? You know, what's is this a landscape? Is this a portrait? And I, I almost get the sense of like that we start in the halls of Valhalla and it's panning through the party. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you pass out through the doors. And then the last thing, the camera pans around on a 360 shot or a 180 shot of the Guardian, who's there with his trumpet. And then once it finishes panning around to his face, it turns outward and you see the the hordes mm-hmm. brewing in the, in the background with Loki Ooh. lurking there just beyond sight. That's good. That's really good imagery. I just gave myself goosebumps. That's really good. That's, Yeah. <laughs> That's very good. I like that. I get images of Bosch's triptychs where it starts out like kind of pastoral oh. and nice. And then yes. you go in and then it gets darker and more mm-hmm. grotesque and more absurd. And then eventually it's just a pile of bodies. Bosch. Hieronymus Bosch. <laughs> I want to have a martini joke for that, but I don't. A Hieronymus Bosch is a martini, but instead of an olive, it's an unspeakable, unnatural horror on a toothpick. On a stick, yeah. (laughs) On a stick. (laughs) I wrote down organ on organ, which is not just my plans for Friday night, but it's also also because John O'Hara is doing so many things. I think John O'Hara really is the MVP of this song. He's really knocking it out, yeah. He's playing so many different roles. He's creating so many textures. Mm-hmm. And he's supporting, he's building the world around all those those shifts in feeling and those shifts in dynamic and imagery that we have in the song. So he, just even in that first 30 seconds, we have him very subtly backing Ian up in some really cool ways. With some, like, electro-organ feel. Yes. We get synth later on, but that first bit is like, I couldn't even tell you what it's supposed to be emulating, but I think it's supposed to be an organ. I think. I realize now what I wrote, what I meant to write down, but I got distracted, was organ on organ setting. Oh. (laughs) You mean synth on organ or? Synth on organ setting. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's there. But he, yeah, I mean, he is the atmosphere. He's the canvas for this song, for sure. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And we need it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, And but we don't lose him. Though, you know, like you can still pick him out every step of the way, even though he's changing the setting and changing the tune, every other bar, every other measure, he's still there. And you're right. He is definitely the MVP on this song. Very, very fun. He never says this is the John O'Hara show. No, 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 no. Watch me tickle the keys. No. I'm really delighted by this song overall. It's very captivating. This song is for me. It's very interesting. Scott Hammond does some extremely delicate drum work in the in the intro, mm. just kind of backing up in with a. He also a little less than our synth, but he also all throughout his drums are strong. They're solid. They're unique. At no point am I bored with the drums. If I can pull them out, they're very enjoyable. Yeah. No, everybody, David Goodyear is providing the heaviness when Mm -hmm. needed Mm -hmm. when we switch over to the darkness. The garden stands above the pain. And as we were trying to work out after listening to the song, there are musical references to at least two other, and I think three other, songs from this album. Yeah. And that is something that I don't think that we have had 
before Intel in such a blatant way or in such yeah. a direct way. And I freaking love it. It's like a reverse overture. It's like a mega mix at the end of it's like any classical music or opera where you reincorporate a theme from a previous section into something at the end. It's beautiful. And you get the sense that everybody that we've talked about, everybody's here mm -hmm. duking it out. Right. Yeah. We've had these fun little like tongue in cheek lyrical references in the past where it's like, oh, he's talking about oh, living in the past. It's <laughs> if you don't know the song, you wouldn't know if you don't know. Maybe Toby. her attention is drawn by Aqualung. Exactly. Yeah. But this uses musical themes from the songs that we've heard on this album as that final piece of the coming together, like you said. Penultimate. The penultimate. It feels like the epic ending, though. You know, the, the yeah, last you're right. bit is kind of the zoom out. Yeah, we have the addendum, or we have the postscript. It's the bookend. It's the Grecian chorus or the Norse chorus wrapping things up with Unirbirna. For never was a tale of more woe than that of Juliet and her Romeo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so what are, what are our, what our, our references here? What did we find? So you picked out that the perfect one is referenced. Right, right at like 35, right as that light bit ends and Ian starts to sing. Da, 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 da. It's a darker, dare I say, heavier version of the perfect one. I think it's down a, a little bit. It might be minor yep. versus major, but it's, it's a lot darker than the perfect one. He smiles, beguiles, and occupies a perfect sacred space the garden stands above the plain surveys the past rainbow bridge which is pretty darn nice because we start the lyrics with that song and really the final straw that broke the camel's back was the incident with the perfect one it's what set the events into motion yeah brilliantly referenced in a subtle in a subtle way yeah. At about 150, we have the theme from the Feathered Consort. Which is fascinating. I'm interested to interested to know a little bit more about what. Freya's role in Ragnarok was, because I think we know we know a lot about what Odin and, and Loki mm -hmm. and the snaky guy. Jormungand. Jormungand, or what they're all doing. I think the idea of the feathered consort is kind of twofold. One of the, the things is that Freya slash Frigg is in a lot, even if she's in the background, she's in a lot of the stories. Mm -hmm. Also, she's the one who has, being the feathered consort, she's the one with the cloak with falcon feathers, which Loki borrowed to go save something or someone of the Norse. There's a connection there as well. There's a human connection, and it tells you that Loki wasn't always the bad guy, even though he was shat upon. Yeah, like the, yeah. He still helped out, and he still got something from it, and he got something for them. I think there's a reminder that it's, like we said in the beginning, it's not just good guys, bad guys. It's a bit more tangled. Right. It's more like one of those kind of Appalachian multi-generational family epics. Mm. 
Hatfields and the McCoys, yeah. Yeah, where it's not so much like good, like you said, it's not so much good guys and bad guys. It's just very unfortunate happenstances that continue on for generations. Right, yeah. And also, you know, the idea of, of the Feathered Consort in this context, thinking back to the cinematic approach to this song, it's useful to have, for the listener, some heightened perspective, some aerial footage, if you will, of the battle. Mm-hmm. It almost gives you the opportunity to imagine flying over this incredible battle, which is just raging and being able to see kind of the details and then diving back into it and having the chaos all around you. Yeah. Yeah, straight out of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings or... It's very Lord of the Rings. Yeah. It's very Lord of the Rings. Or rather, Lord of the Rings is very this. Yeah, And that's right. that's the real T here. Right. Even the Braveheart battles, you know, even those like any like really epic cinematic battle scene that we've seen, I can see just like the senseless violence of these two walls of flesh just just slamming into each other. Yeah, yeah. Wow, which sounds a lot like my Friday night. There, you have it planned, right? Yeah. This is a good instance, a good example of the majority of what we've heard so far. The last couple of songs have kind of been exceptions, but the majority of this album is Ian sings the Norse part one way. We have a little breakdown. Ian sings the modern day part Mm. a different way. Mm -hmm. Boy, do I love how he sings the modern day part here. Oh, Oh, yes. That's stilted. May West Helmet. Oh, it's so good. Yes. Oh, it's so good. May West Helmet. You know, I attended a lecture recently that was being put on by the Florida Native Plant Association. Mm -hmm. And it was about birds. But that's not the point. The point is, I drove up there. To, to attend this, and on the way I listened to, on the way there and on the way back, I listened to the album, because it was slightly too short a drive to listen to the whole album. And this is an album that I, because I kind of realized while we were talking about the last song, the most recent song when we were talking about The Navigators, that I hadn't listened to this album too much as a whole piece. Right. Yeah, likewise. And I wish I could tell you that I had some big revelation about it. <laughs> I think what is so effective about this song in the context of the album it is like the best of. It's the best of the albums. It's everything that you like about this album. And what I really got a sense of more than anything else from listening to it as a whole was that all those different pentameters, those different mm. poetical styles. Right. Listening one by one, I don't think they come through as much. Listening to the album as a whole, you really start to get a, a sense of this whole thing is a play on rhythm. This whole thing is a play on how lyrics can be presented yeah, and how the subtle changes of tempo uh, and such affect it. Yeah, I think, yes, you can listen to snippets of Tool to Rock and Roll. You can listen to, you can pull out a single chunk of Passion Play or Thick as a Brick. But is it advised? Eh, not really. I think you should listen to the whole thing. And I feel like this kind of falls into that, you know, Zealot Gene was also like really solid concept, but I feel like you can pull those pieces out and listen to them and you're not missing anything story-wise. You get, you've got your own solid little bits and sonically they sound like cohesive. Mm. This, I feel like these pieces, and it may be because it's still too early, but I feel like these pieces fit far better together as a whole. I think that 
perhaps the takeaway is that Jethro Tull and the way that Ian writes historically are more contextual yeah. Oh, yeah. than a lot of other bands. If you listen to an album of The Cars, it almost gets annoying because each song is such a banger that stands so well on its own. It's like, and now The Cars are going to do that amazing thing that they do. Whoopee! I love the cars. I, I love listening to them, but I, I can't listen to too much at the same time. Right. Or I can't listen to too many songs one after the other. Because there's very little difference in tempo. There's very little difference in sound. Right. It's just... Yeah, you got to put them in a new wave mix. Exactly. And it's okay, yeah. But Jethro Tull, it is enhanced by listening to it in situ, in the place in the album that it is. Yes, yeah, agreed. I think that... Part of the reason I stopped listening to Tull for a period of years had to do with the technology that I was listening to it with. Mm. Because, you know, with the advent of streaming, you can listen to any single song. So what I ended up doing was saying, play me Jethro Tull. And it would start playing random songs from random albums. And I was like, I don't know. Yeah. I'm just not into this. Now, with getting back into vinyl and getting back into, like, really listening to an album... And also because of the way that streaming has now evolved, where it is easier to find, like, okay, find me this album, and I want to listen right. to that entire thing. Yeah. It's a better listening experience for Tall. There was a dark time for the art of music, I think, probably, like, right around when we were in college, when they were trying to come out with good portable music technology, when they were trying to come up with figuring out a way to not have to carry an actual like medium with you, you know, a cassette, a, a CD, whatever. Yeah. I feel like there was a struggle there, particularly when, when we were that in that era. I want to identify the exact moment, which is when computers started coming without CD drives built into them. Because when the iPod first came out and when the, you know, when the first smartphones came out, you could take all your CDs, burn them off your computer and put them on your phone, put them on your iPod. Yeah. Great. Then you have the whole album there. When that stopped being a thing and you you didn't have that collection anymore, you were at the whim of the very baby steps of streaming, which kind of, you know, were great at the time for some things, but also kind of sucked. Right. Unless you had all of them digitally already, which back then storage was crazy expensive. So you couldn't have that much. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So we're in a much better situation now. And vinyl and vinyl hashtag and vinyl do you know something that blew my tiny little mind this summer i was as you may know in buffalo new york doing a shakespeare show i heard and they had summer interns for the show right and they were 14 to 16 year old young people and i did speak to some of them at times out of necessity and somebody, one of the other actors was like, oh yeah, I ran into such and such, this 15-year-old you know, young person at the record shop. And I turned to the 15-year-old and I was like, what in the hell were you doing at a record <laughs> shop? <laughs> and she was like, well, I love vinyl because the sound quality is so much better than listening on a digital format. I was like, what? Who told you about vinyl? Yeah. What is this? And I was no. like, do you have a record player? And she was like, yes, I do. And I really like listening to music on vinyl. And I was like, okay, cool. You know, the Gen Z has already figured it out. Oh, yeah. We walked so they could run. Our generation was getting back into vinyl, thanks to our parents. Our generation was getting back into vinyl and therefore necessitating that modern bands start putting out vinyl before these kids were buying their own albums. And, and now, 
vinyl is mainstream again. It's not even like a question. That was the gag for me was, yeah. oh my God, it's so mainstream that like the literally the cool kids. Yeah, but studies have shown it does not sound any better. It's literally the experience. It is the experience of vinyl. And ultimately, is that not what matters? Exactly. No, I'm not complaining. I'm Yeah, I think it 100% is. You just have one of those voices that always... <laughs> <laughs> always just bitching. <laughs> the salad is very good. I love it. Did you know that croutons are fattening? <laughs> What's wrong, Mom? What's wrong? No, nothing. It's beautiful. It's I'm having a great time. I don't regret leaving the home at all. My mother is Dr. Girlfriend from Venture Brothers, <laughs> as referenced last week. Yes. Some final things, sonically, musically, that final instrumental break after we get the end of the Ian bits, the modern day bits, we get into that instrumental break and we get a great little acoustic. It doesn't last the whole way, but it's really nice. It's really, yeah. really nice. He kind of runs up and down with it. Oh my God, that is such a stadium rock band ending. It's so satisfying. It's almost fifths. Mm. And you could draw that out forever. It feels like, I don't know, it feels like a cheeky little like, oh yeah, by the way, remember how we're a freaking rock band? Oh, it's so good. Yes, do we use poetic structures from the ancient Norse? Yeah, sure. Do we use instruments you've never heard of? Maybe. Do we have the compositional prowess of a young, sexy Beethoven before he went deaf? Yeah, but guess what? We can still rock your socks off in the stadium. Yes. Yes, I think that's worth it. And also- Got excited there. Story-wise, like it really works. Like it's, this is- the end. But it doesn't go, it's not on a down note, it's on an up note because uh -huh. they're just reborn again. The story starts over. And because the guardian about whom we will speak is such a beautiful figure, I think, in this. Mm. This song speaks to me of duty. Okay. And you know that, you know the scene in The Lord of the Rings where the hobbits go and light the fire of Gondor in Minas Tirith? And you have that amazing sequence. It's like a minute and a half that's just like flyby shots of people lighting wood on fire. And it's the most epic, like incredible emotional experience that you could have at the cinema. You know what I'm talking about? I think so, yeah. This to me kind of feels like that. It's like the world is dark and yet there is hope. Mm. Okay, I like it. Yeah. Maybe this is a discussion for the next portion, but I feel like we identified why we have that light bit in the beginning, that everything kind of falls into Ragnarok. Why do we have that breakup in the middle as well? Breakup in the middle. He goes back to the light bit again, and he breaks up that darkness for a brief moment. Oh, you know, I think that it perhaps ties back to, you know, for the Asir, much like the Klingons, to die in battle to die doing the thing mm. that you exist to do is yeah. glorious. Yeah. You die in battle and you go to Valhalla. The Valkyries take you to Valhalla. If you're a human, yeah. And, for, and so even for the gods, 
the Asir are all very warlike. And so I think there's that sense of... They're doing the right thing. Yeah, it's like they're made for this. They're dying with purpose. Yeah, exactly. And there's a glory in that. And there's a delight in that. Yeah. I think the delight is really the key there is like, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. And boy, we're enjoying the hell out of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Am I full of world snake venom? Yes. But am I having fun? Yeah. Okay. Here we are. Halfway. As this is the penultimate track, it is tradition that we do our Sleeping with the Dogs in Midwinter, where we talk album art. We sure do, and it sure is. And here we go. Not much to talk about. <laughs> Actually, even less than you would think. Everybody knows the clip art dude with the flute. Yep. On the, the rock background with... A nice serifed font, which if you were carving into rock, you probably wouldn't serif. Just a thought. Now, hold on here. Actually, you might serif it because, yes, it'd be more work, but it would also stand out more. If you're going to carve into rock, you may as well put serifs in. Not to challenge your, your non-serifed idea, but I do notice a lot of fonts that are carved have those bits at the end, and I think it's to kind of line everything up nicely. Are you talking about like modern day? No, I am not. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll ask our anthropological uh, friends here. So we've got Jethro Tall on the top and Rückflüte on the bottom. It is pretty standard. On the back, we've got the dark version of that stone background with a bigger version of our horned flautist yeah. standing on one leg. Mm -hmm. In the middle, by gummy, we've got the full lineup. On the left-hand side is Ian using his mind to kill people. Nah. Wearing a very nice vest. Very nice Asian dragon-y vest. Yeah, looking very healthy. On the right-hand side, we've got the rest of the crew. Right there. Yep, nice portraits. The only one I can identify is JPJ, because he's a baby. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's the young one. And that's it. And, and the, the artwork concept is credited to Ian and James Anderson. Love that. And the artwork layout and design is Thomas Ewerhard, who did the zealot gene. Let's talk about that, that red horned flute figure there for a second. It sure. is, obviously it's a reference to Ian standing on one leg as he is iconically known for. Interesting addition of the horns. Any thoughts on that? I mean, horns in red makes me think devil. Which is not really... It's not a Norse concept, really. Not really a Norse concept, yeah. I, yeah. I wonder if it puts it more into the trickster milieu. Okay, sure. Sure, he feels very trickstery. The way that the torso is leaning, the torso isn't completely straight up and down, the way that the torso is kind of leaning, nothing, there's nothing that's like a true vertical in that image. Yeah, right. It does make it feel a little bit kind of that trickster body pose. yeah. The fact that it's red almost makes me think of, like, the blood spilled upon the cold rocks of the north. You know what I mean? It certainly makes it pop. It does make it pop. I'll give you that. But, yeah, I mean, but think about all of those cave paintings that, what is it, ochre? Yeah. You know, that, that mm -hmm. red, that they would do the reverse hand prints and things like that and draw the, the bison and the things that they yeah. hunted, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of what that is supposed to 
be close to, but again, the red and horns is, I mean, it's hard not to think devil there, but again, that just, just doesn't fit. It's interesting. It's fun. It's playful and it is intriguing. I do love that you brought up the angles. He's clearly leaning into it. There's movement in this picture. There's motion in it. And it's very satisfying as opposed to just a rigid figure standing. Speaking of the cave paintings and petroglyphs Mm -hmm. and that ancient art form, this figure does have a little junk in the trunk. There's a little dangle, a little dangle dongling there. I think it might just be like, it's not a clean line that if you're drawing a stick figure, you know, there may be length below the legs, but true to feckless form, I'm the one who's always like, oh no, it's about flowers. I don't see any penis around here. There's no penis here. And you're like, it's a dong. That's a dong. Penis. Wham. (laughs) Schlong. Dingle. (laughs) Oh, the songs ring out solstice spells. Look at that wang. (laughs) (laughs) More like rig out solstice balls. (laughs) No, but I, you know, in that art form, there is a big genitalia often feature prominently in that ancient art, in those ancient uh, art forms, because it was a big see it, say it sort of. (laughs) (laughs) I like that Ian is saying that there's still warmth in that old sporan. Sporan. There's warmth in that old sporan that they placed upon his head. Wow. When they began to dance around. That's, that's. Frosty the Snow Scotsman? It's Frosty the Scotsman. (laughs) Frosty the Scotsman. Well, yeah, anything else to say about the artwork? I mean, pretty straightforward. The visual artwork. Yeah, not a whole lot going there. Thomas Awerhard from last last album, rather. He did Zealot Gene. He's pretty much a go-to guy for pretty badass death scary metal. And uh, he seemed to make an exception for Jethro Tull. Maybe that was in his contract. He's like, I'll do it as long as I can put horns on something. Yeah, right, right. They had to acquiesce to that, yeah. Right. Gordian's Warch. Nick, let's hear the blurb that Ian has provided for us regarding this song. Because I know we are talking about a specific figure, and I don't have it off the top of my head, although I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to place bets on Heimdall. Correct. However, look, tell me what you can see. Heimdall, Guardian's Horn. Wait a minute. Yeah. The song is called Guardian's Horn? That must have been the song title before Guardian's Watch, and they they never changed it in the track outline. That is fascinating, and I wonder, yeah. it'd be interesting to see, like, if in the first printing of the vinyl, it's Guardian's Horn, and therefore maybe Ooh, yeah. you have a very valuable print of it. Do you think there will be a second print of this vinyl? (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, absolutely, I do. I think that's very, very positive. I was just telling you how the 15-year-olds are all into vinyl, and as soon as they find out about Jethro Tull, it's over. It's over. There's not going to be enough vinyl in the world to keep printing them out. Ian will never stop. Maybe then they'll they'll re-release all the others, too, that they're missing. Could be. That's nice. So this is Heimdall. 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 The ever-vigilant guardian of the gods' stronghold, Asgard. Here he watches and listens, holding at the ready his Gjallar horn, or resounding horn, which he blows when intruders are approaching. And there are lyric references in here, which we'll get to when we get to the modern day. So I just love that instead of the song being called Ragnarok, 
And it's mm. a song about this person stabbed this person and this person crushed him and he was killed by what's-his-face and he <laughs> bit him in half. Like, that's what I was expecting. I think that's all what we were expecting. It's like the biblical he begot him and he begot him instead of he Except slew him. Slaying. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, the slayings. I just love that the imagery is literally the calm before the storm. Literally yeah. this this image of Heimdall standing ready. Oh, I love it so much. And I've yeah. always loved that image just in general. It fits with the rest of the album because every every song represents a person, you know, yes. not necessarily an event. So it really does fit. And it's interesting. You don't necessarily think of Heimdall as being one of the, like the really badass, amazing, top tier Norse gods. First draft. First draft. Draft pick. He seems like tertiary, but I mean, his job is really important. And the Aesir would certainly have been caught off guard had they not had Heimdall there to blow the Gjallarhorn. And again, it's going back to that sense of you have a very specific job and you are very well suited to that job. I love this line about... He hears the sound of grass a-growing. I pulled that out, too. I love that. He hears the sound of grass a-growing. You know, you could say, oh, that's quite poetic. But actually, grass does make a sound when it grows. They've done these recordings of plants growing, and they do mm. make these little fascinating little sounds. Whoa! Wee! Wee! <laughs> it's a me! Grassio! <laughs> so... You know, the fact that this is in the traditional, this is in the Eda section. And I imagine that was a, a feature of his character. Yeah. And the fact that that is a real thing that he could hear. If you had hearing good enough, you could hear the sound of grass growing. Right. Yeah. Ah! <laughs> this is strange. In order to be as ever vigilant and potent a watch as he is, he needs that perception. Senses keen, a quiet etude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Keen-eyed stares toward the middle world from high upon the castle ridge. Keen-eyed stares towards middle world from high upon the castle ridge. Yeah, the imagery here is really nice. Really, really nice. So he stands at the foot of the Bifrost. Yes. The Guardian stands above the plain, surveys the path to Rainbow Bridge, the Bifrost. Guardian and actually, I think in the Marvel universe, in the Thor films, we have Heimdall portrayed by Andrus Elba. Elba? Oh, yeah, yeah right, right. Yeah. As a blind Heimdall, mm -hmm. which is yeah. very interesting. He controls where Bifrost lands. You know, he can control where it, like, shoots them. Yeah. Right. It's a bit of a fantasy on... Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's great. He's sort of, yeah, he's the gatekeeper. Yeah. They imagine Bifrost less as a bridge exactly and more of a portal to all these various places. Right. With trumpet drawn, Gallarhorn, to warn of first approach of those who might intrude. Yeah. He hears the sound of grass a-growing, senses keen, a quiet attitude. With trumpet drawn, to warn of first What's an etude, Omen? It means study. Etudier is French for to study, and an etude is a study, as in 
an exercise on an instrument that is mm-hmm. written to challenge you in a certain way is an etude. A study, if you're saying, oh, I'm doing an a-, a painting etude, you're doing a, a study of a certain thing by doing it. His study is just listening and watching. Yeah. I love how focused, you know, it's so often we get these gods that seem composite. Yeah. And it's like, oh, she's the god of war, owls, hangnails. <laughs> Slightly burnt tarts. Right, right, exactly. And also love. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And it's like Heimdall has one thing that he does. It's very, very clear. Yeah. He watches the Bifrost and that's it. He almost doesn't feel like a god, you know? I mean, you're right. He's not in the same... I can understand your, your feeling that he's not on the same level as Thor or somebody like that. But I think that gods come in different shapes and sizes. Oh, sure. Every god is beautiful. We love all gods. Yeah. All gods matter. Yeah. <laughs> Before the giants come to call, the rage of final battle locked with flaming sword and serpent venom, Revelation Ragnarok. Before the giants come to call, the rage of final battle locked with flaming sword and serpent venom, Love that line. So Ooh. so dynamically Oof. written with just the sounds of the syllables. Yeah. The soundables. The giants always in conflict with the Norse gods. Right. Loki's bosom buddies with them. Basically, he joins them in their army to end it all. And he gets an army made from skeletons. His ship is made of dead men's oh, fingernails. Fingernails. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has an army of the dead that he's bringing along with him. Nice. Like you said, it's it does feel like, oh, yeah. Every once in a while, there are going to be giant raids that come up the Bifrost, and Heimdall is there to warn everybody, and they have a jolly good time killing, you know, killing and beating back the giants. That's an important note. It's like Thor loves to kill giants. Yes. Loves. The only thing he lo- loves a little bit more is probably drinking, but they're close. Por que no los dos? Why not both? <laughs> and I think that that's where the brightness of this comes. It's that sense of, Maybe they don't think this is the final battle. Maybe this is just another, oh my gosh, this is going to be a good one. Yeah. And then even when they do realize it's the final battle, well, we're going to go out do it. He died doing what he loved. (laughs) Killing giants. Killing giants. (laughs) And their offspring. The line I like better than hearing the grass grow is Revelation Ragnarok. Yes. Tell me a bit why you like it. I think it's twofold. I think it's, like you said, maybe they didn't think that it was the end, the the final fight at first. They're like, oh yeah, let's go kick some giant's asses. And then they see Jormungand. And then they see Loki. And then they see Hell. And all of these things. And they're like, oh shit, this is it. You see Thor go down. You're like, oh, wait a minute. Well, and, and it's important to remember not only the revelation of, oh, wait a minute, this is different, but the revelation of, this is what the vulva prophesied. Mm, yeah, 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 this is it. We all know this story, yeah. but we don't necessarily know as it's happening that it's Ragnarok mm-hmm. until. Yeah. And also. And also. The book of Revelation is the end of the world. Yeah. Yes. And that's what Ragnarok is. Yep. Love it. Love it. Yeah. Very good. Very, very good. And. How does Heimdall fare during Ragnarok? I think he gets killed. By? 
Loki? They kill each other, yeah. Loki? Oh, okay. So you're saying he's a a C-lister. If he kills Loki? But he's badass, yeah. Wow. That's more impressive to me than killing Jormungand. Killing that squirrely son of a bitch Loki. Yeah. Yeah. That's like nailing fog to a wall. (laughs) All right, granddad. (laughs) That's such an old man statement. (laughs) I love it, though. It's really good. It's like rinsing the white off of a grain of rice. I can't say the other old bad version of that. Yeah, that feels like it can't be good. No, no, no. Moving on to present day, here's where we have that lineup of references. You read the Ian's part, and I'll give you the translations here. May West helmet MK8 goggles shoot at ready on the wing. Young men spring to action, answer jarring scramble bells harsh ring. May West helmet MK8 goggles shoot at I can guess, based on all that, kind of what we're talking about. Gear up, climbing, Merlin rolling, bandits, one five, sounds the cry, chime of destiny sends aloft, virgin guardians of the sky. Gear up, climbing, Merlin rolling, bandits, one five, sounds the cry. Chime of destiny sends aloft, virgin guardians of the sky. I'm very curious to hear what the references are specifically. So May West is a colloquial World War II term for a flotation jacket worn by pilots. That's funny because May West had huge tits. Is that why? <laughs> when I heard May West, I was like, what? Why? <laughs> yeah, no, because she was buxom. Okay. Why don't you come up and use me as a flotation device sometime? <laughs> I can save your life and then I'll smother you. I've got room for 12 grown men aboard. Mark 8 goggles are the classic pilot's goggles of the era. The Merlin is the Rolls-Royce engine, which powered the legendary Hurricane, Spitfire, Mosquito, and Lancaster aircrafts. Yep. And bandits are enemy aircraft. And 1-5 is a bearing. Bandits 1-5, or a code. Oh, like 1 and 5? Like the clock, or...? Could be, yeah. Okay. Don't really know. It's 15 o'clock. Aeronautical, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we're, so we're talking about the parachuters. I wrote the Jumpy Men. The Jumpy Men, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jumpy Boys. And so both the pilots who would... Oh, 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 oh. It's not the parachuters. It's the boys who would scramble the RAF during the German raids on England during World War II. Scramble bells harsh ring, yeah. They would go up and do the dogfights in the skies. If you want an amazing description and firsthand account of those dogfights, not necessarily the ones in England but the ones of the era. If you read Roald Dahl's autobiography, Flying Solo, Mm. he was a RAF pilot in Greece during World War II. And his descriptions, his firsthand accounts of those dogfights are hair-raising. Really? Wow. Oh, my God. I mean, because they were terrifying. Did he crash into the chocolate factory? Or he did. Just, <laughs> and he, 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 well, because he was avoiding a giant peach. Yeah. <laughs> and the BFG, yeah. The BGF, the big girlfriend. The big Yellerhorn. <laughs> so why are we talking about the RAF? Why are we talking about that era of history? Well, I mean, I'm sure to a lot of people, World War II felt like it could very well be the end. For some people, it was the end. For some people, it was. For a lot of people, it was the end. For about 13 million people. Yeah. I mean, 60 million, I forget, a large millions. Several million. 
several dozen millions, a dozen, at least a dozen million. <laughs> I think that's a safe estimate, yeah. And the psychology at the time, the rhetoric at the time mm. was, and this is what Churchill was so good at doing, was inspiring people to say, this isn't just a war where we're defending our country. This is a war of good and evil. Yes, right. And we are the bastion of goodness. We are the Asir. We are the good guys. Yeah. And here come the hordes of Loki. And by golly, we're not just going to defend ourselves. We are going to defend ourselves with joy in our hearts. Yeah. And the lust for battle in our blades, you know, like. For queen and country. For queen and country. And the Germans had the same sort of narrative. Oh, sure, of course. I love the detail, virgin guardians of the sky. I don't know if that's a reference specifically to Heindall, if he was just so busy watching Bifrost that he never had a chance to do the deed. But these young men, these young pilots, you know, they were young. They were young. Yeah. They could easily have died in a state of virginity. <laughs> the state of virginity. State. And the state of inebriation. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. Have a, have a snoot of brandy and a blow a kiss to, to Mother England. Yeah. Woof. If it was World War II now, I would take upon myself the duty of making sure that none of those boys died a virgin. You're the true hero. I'd work tirelessly, <laughs> day and night. Sacrifice. <laughs> yeah, interesting. It's very interesting. Like, he could have, having referenced... Putin already, I feel like he could probably very easily have put the Ukraine-Russia thing in here, but he did go to back to World War II. That's what I like about Ian's writing is that whenever he gets too close to the edge of saying something. Predictability? Yeah, he takes it back. And I think that, you know, again, this is, I do feel like all of this album is his personal relationship to these myths. Right. And so for him, what is the most evident, what is the most illuminated tie-in to Heimdall and Ragnarok was was those stories of World War II. Yeah. The ever-readiness of the RAF. And specifically, the air raid sirens and that, those early warning systems and that relationship to the, to the horn of Heimdall. And Ian was born two years after World War II ended, so he would have grown up with people. He, he would have had teachers who were in the war. He would have heard stories secondhand. It would be full on in his scope of knowledge. They would have still been rebuilding. Oh, sure, yeah. Literally, the infrastructure of England when he was a boy, he would have seen the bombed-out craters. For him, it would have been like waking up on a green field of, and golden chess pieces and seeing all these helmets and, and swords lying around. Yeah, right. When the cycle begins again, the Ragnarok has ended, the cycle starts again, and he is now a part of it. And maybe that is now where, in his later years, he's seeing the beasts raise their heads up again and sort of feeling like, well, maybe this is another cycle of destruction. This looks familiar. This looks familiar. <sighs> I read an article the other day. There was a, a fencing competition, and the Ukrainian fencer refused to shake the hand of the Russian fencer. And the article was like, I cannot believe they broke tradition. Taking politics into it, they would break tradition of always shaking the hands of your opponent. Wow. It's like, 
when you stop bombing wow. my country, I, I will start shaking your hand. How about that? Oof. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I want to point out that we made a choice to jump ahead to these albums because we were physically incapable of waiting to talk about them. But it is a different experience talking about an album that we have just gotten our paws on versus an album that we've been sitting with for more than a decade. Yeah. And, you know, we might have to return to this album at some point after having sat with it for a few years. And it'll be interesting to kind of see... How does each listener's relationship with this album develop, you know, after years and years of, of listening to it? Because that's, I mean, for me, I do feel like Tall is one of those bands that it just gets better the more that you listen. It ages very well. It does. It ages like a fine cheese. It's fine cheese wine. And putting it in context, you know, there's always that level of, well, I've listened to this for a year and now this new album comes out. This new album is not completely independent. I can't listen to it hermetically sealed. And now I can't listen to Zealot Gene unaffected by this album. It's all a continuum. It's the tall continuum. And who knows in five years when we revisit this album, how, how it's going to be affected by album x the next 30 albums yeah <laughs> the next 30 albums that the end will be putting out this coming month one per day one per day yep one full release per day yep i try to do that too <laughs> nick omen what are we talking about next week goodness gracious next week we are wrapping up this album already seems incredible a full 12 tracks but it zipped right by we are our kind of we're closing out the bookend here we've got Ithaval. Featuring the glorious text recited by Unirbirna. Unirbirna. Yes. Whom, on re listening to when I was listening to the album, I was just very impressed by her, yeah, her performance. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we'll talk a little bit about her. I realized that we kind of failed to really talk her up on the first one. So we'll, we'll talk about her a little bit more uh, on this next one. Until next week, I am the head of the Rainbow Bridge, Owen Thomas Said. I, <laughs> I am a not-so-young man ready to hobble to action, Nick McGill. This is the sound of grass a-growing. Talk, talk to me. <laughs> We're getting out of here before the giants come to call. We're the Feckless Momes. Another horn of mead, say I. Oh, I've lost count of how many horns I have drunk. I've drunk, I can fit my full fist in this horn. <laughs> oh, I'm Heimdall. 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 Yes. Hast thou heard something? I, the ever vigilant one, have heard something. Prepare yourselves. Oh. Prepare oh. yourselves. Swords, axes, Heimdall, what is it that you have heard? Is it giants? A dandelion has sprouted on the eastern hill. Oh, Heimdall. Heimdall, come Heimdall. on. 
What are we? We talked about this. All right. All right. Back to back drinking, to everybody. Drinking. All right. Back to drinking. I think we were. I think I was winning the drinking contest. I think. Ask me another sausage and give me more mead. <laughs> sausage mead for everyone. Oh, to Heimdall! 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 Yes. What is it that you have heard this time? Prepare yourselves. Brace yourselves, friends, compatriots. What is it that? There's a butterfly. On the dandelion, on the eastern hill. Heimdall. Heimdall, come on. We d- that's not in the book. We, were we gave you a book of things that you should actually blow the horn for. That's not even in there. That's not. I, I appreciate your vigilance, but come on, let's be reasonable here. Heimdall, do you want to come in and have a, have a Who couple of- Who will watch? All right, all right, Who all right. Will hear? All right, back to the feast, everybody. All back right, to the feast. All right. Was that my sausage? Is that I? You know, I think it's a at this point anyone's sausage. Really. Bring us another roasted boar, and I will show you how much meat I can fit down my gullet. Watch, I will stand upon my head on this meat <laughs> horn. Oh no, I toppled over. <laughs> Heimdall, Heimdall, what is it you have heard this time? My axe is keen for to kill a giant. Maybe prepare yourselves, brethren. I have heard, yes, a podcast. Oh, a new threat, a new threat. We shall kill it. From across the rainbow bridge, I hear tale of the feckless momes. Their podcast talk told to me. Surely they're not a proud member of anything. Clearly they are. I can hear that they are, in fact, a proud member of the Feckless Momes Audio Network. Oh, to war! A sword day, an axe day, a wolf day! A perfect day to subscribe! <laughs>